You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Dear listeners, this week we're joined by Akhil Patel, who's a director at Ascendant Strategy and also the editor of Cycles, Trends and Forecasts in the UK. So Akhil, it's been probably a couple of years since you've been on the show. Of course, uh, London's always in the news. Uh, Give us a a ground view of what's happening there. Uh, What can we understand that we won't read in the Murdoch press? (laughs) Well, it's very nice to be on your show again, Carl. Thanks for having me. Well, the property news in London is very much dominated by the fallout of the referendum result in June on Brexit. There was initial fears that this would cause the property market to tank by anywhere up to 30%. um, And all of those fears have proven unfounded. Growth has been quite robust. People have been uh, spending on the high streets. And of course, uh, one of the factors that has supported the property market London has led the UK property market for some time, but now we're starting to see growth outside in the east of England and the southeast as well. And there hasn't been an exodus by the Sultan of Brunei and others owning uh, swathes of uh, London's Hyde Park type areas. Uh, how, how have those mansions uh, been faring? Um, well, that's quite an interesting question. The government introduced um, some policy changes well before the referendum process started in 2014 a higher rate of stamp duty for higher value properties and also an additional surcharge for investment homes or second homes. Uh, And that actually had the effect of damping down the uh, prices in prime central London, which of course a lot of those properties were owned by uh, wealthy people from overseas. And so you have seen a fairly significant correction in prices over the last couple of years, but that is independent of the Brexit uh, referendum result. There's been a minor correction at the top end of town, but where it really matters, where the majority of people are uh, trying to survive, to etch out a future, uh, what's been happening uh, in your typical affordable housing Mm -hmm. suburbs? Yeah, affordability in London property prices aren't words that you often put together. Um, Tell us, how much is a house and what's sort of the, the median income? I believe the average house price in London is about... £600,000 thereabouts, this is for a house, and the medium income is, uh, I'm just quoting stats off the top of my head, I might not be entirely correct, but sort of forty to 60000 so I mean really very significant multiple of, of, of median income in London. Uh, it's not quite so stark in other parts of the UK. But nevertheless, property is a multiple of income and as the property cycle develops it's something that I look at uh, along with my business partner Phil Anderson quite closely Uh, the gap between property price growth and wage growth gets ever wider. But still somehow people find a way to to keep their head above water whether that's eating two minute noodles five days a (laughs) week or not I I don't know but you wonder just how much uh, longer this this pressure point can continue as this international capital circles the planet and uh, whilst these policy responses have been a step in the right direction uh, for affordable well for supposedly uh, affordable housing 
it doesn't seem like it's made that much of a, of a dent. And what are the people on the street saying? Are they satisfied with what politicians are doing? No, they're not satisfied. Uh, I think they are in favour of politicians taking steps to address affordability and lack of new housing uh, issues. And so I think the recent changes to stamp duty, which I mentioned, were have been generally supported, as has uh, restrictions on lending criteria for people buying investment properties. Um, and also there have been a number of policy proposals in the recent white paper that was published by the government to try and encourage developers to build uh, more quickly and, of course, to uh, get local authorities to approve planning for new housing. So it, there's a, actually quite a range of supply and demand side measures to try and build uh, new houses, which supposedly will uh, put a upward um, ceiling on uh, uh, property price increases. But as we know, uh, ultimately, unless you have a broad-based land tax, uh, you're never really going to solve the underlying issues. And so that use it or lose it type concept for developers is uh, an innovative one. I know there's a, a chart doing the rounds on the cumulative number of rezoned plots in London that haven't been built on. And when you continually hear this land supply crisis catch cry, but then you dig a little deeper and, and look at things like our speculative vacancy report or an innovative measure like this uh, cumulative unbuilt plot. So you, you can see that uh, uh, it's a game of trading horses, if you like, rather than building houses. And uh, that's where a land tax comes in. It puts uh, a hot potato in the hands of developers. But uh, the two-year proposal for use it or lose it, that's still in discussion. It's not actually a policy in place. Yeah, I think the government will have to introduce legislation to address some of these issues, including also the other side of the, the planning system is local authorities being fairly concerned about local views on additional house building without paying enough attention to the bigger picture of actually building new houses. Um, and so the government is proposing to increase accountability for housing delivery on local authorities. Uh, but all of that will need to be legislated, I think. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next 12 months. So these signals to the market then, uh, you know, these are the, conser the conservative government putting forward these uh, policies, uh, increasing stamp duties. It must be adding up in the eyes of the developers that the, this ability to flip houses, to... Uh, to, to hoard land, the game is almost up. Is Do you hear any of those sort of talks? Because you deal with a lot of investors and, mm. and how are they feeling about this increasing concern, this scrutiny on the role of uh, these rent, this sort of rent-seeking behaviour? Well, it has had an effect on particularly buy-to-let landlords. Uh, probably over the last 20 years, certainly since the late 90s when uh, mortgage products became available specifically for uh, these sorts of investors, there was a quite a significant increase in the number of people owning properties and earning rents from those. Um, unless you have a very large portfolio, this has put a significant pressure on, on that segment of the investor market. Uh, but uh, as with all things, once you reduce one set of incentives, you create others. And so now people are looking at, uh, rather than... Uh, buying finished properties and renting them out, actually finding sites to build houses and then sell them on. 
and so you uh, you uh, capture the capital increase from uh, uh, planning approval, for example. Arguably, that isn't quite as bad as the, the rent the rental model because you are increasing supply uh, into the market, and the UK has a rising population, particularly in London. And even though there are some, uh, you know, people aren't using sites as efficiently as they could there is nevertheless a need for newer housing. So you could argue that's a good thing. Um, but it's interesting that you put one set of policy restrictions in place and then people find something else to do. And that will just go round and round and round and round, as you well know. With Brexit and this rising xenophobic type nature, how has it impacted on foreign investment? Has the increase in stamp duties uh, it, had much of an impact and where do you think it's really going it's not going to really curtail the foreign investment that much i mean we see examples here in australia where they've doubled the stamp duty and tripled the land tax for foreign investors but uh, still there are those recent uh, uh, migrants a lot of students from asia who have citizenship who are now all of a sudden have booming property portfolios on behalf of their families so that workaround as you say is always there uh, policy makers must be recognising they need a decent systemic analysis uh, on things and I noticed that the Mayor of London uh, recently came out in favour of uh, investigating land value taxes and doing some decent research on it. That's correct. Um, so just to answer the first question, it's had an impact on foreign investor sentiment it seems. Um, as much of an impact on uh, sentiment the other way has been, of course, the fall in the value of sterling. So sterling fell uh, 20% against the dollar and suddenly London property is 20% cheaper. Uh, and so the additional 3% surcharge that the stamp duty changes brought in is therefore to a certain extent irrelevant in that context. So uh, it seems that there's now, of after about two years where foreign investment city in the centre of London seem to be going down I think the latest signs are that it's gone, come right back up again because of the referendum. Uh, yes, um, actually, there's been a number of fairly prominent commentators who seem to be in favour of a some form of land value tax. Uh, the, later, the latest being the Mayor of London and some of the research that his office has produced or is about to produce. Um, but also I've seen you know, fairly significant commentators in the Financial Times, in The Economist, uh, and in other publications talk quite seriously about this sort of reform. It seems inevitable in a world of mobile capital that somewhere, somewhere or another we're going to have to get serious about implementing land value tax and I just wonder how the youth of London, the UK are actually going. Are they... I see lots of articles in The Guardian, George Monbiot, Olivia Wainwright, a number of others have written about it as well. And mm. the comments uh, are always mixed. Uh, a lot of you know property owners jump up and down. But then how do you feel uh, in the, on the street talking to people about this? Uh, is their literacy improving? Um, I wouldn't say that it is particularly. It's not really a common topic of political discussion. Unfortunately, though... Obviously, it is a positive sign that serious uh, commentators and analysts are considering these changes. I think, in reality, most people are fairly ignorant of the issues. And, and uh, as you say, young people are further and further away from the housing ladder. Uh, Behaviour shifts. Uh, people buy as a couple now, as whereas before they may have bought as a single person. They buy later in life. They 
are able to put down less of a deposit or there are demand side measures like the help to buy scheme to provide um, a, a low cost loan or um, to assist with a deposit. And so essentially, uh, while we might regard uh, property prices being horrendously expensive, uh, we can't mistake that for people's willingness to actually still you know, go ahead and buy those properties. And it seems that will continue in, uh, for, for a very long period of time. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald and this week we're in discussion with Akhil Patel from Cycles, Trends and Forecasts UK. And Akhil, of course, uh, one of the big questions we always are asked is, uh, is the property market going to crash? With these changes coming through in the UK, is there any sign that uh, uh, this burgeoning industry, which here in Australia, um, the property lobby is trying to uh, build up the business case that... uh, Real estate employs more people than mining. I think they had a stat out that as triple as many people are involved in real estate than in mining. So uh, uh, implicitly they're saying you can't, you can't allow this industry to crash. It will hurt too many people. How's that playing out in the UK? Well, the UK still has the ideal, uh, and I think this is accepted on both sides of the political divide, of being a property-owning democracy. Uh, And certainly government policy is going to be broadly supportive of that. Um, I suppose part of your question relates to where, you know, how do I think this is going to play out in the context of the uh, property cycle, which is something that I focus on. Um, I don't see any of the changes fundamentally altering how that cycle will play out. So I think we'll probably have another 10 years of property growth, price growth in the UK. Um, There will be some turbulence Uh, when the UK finally uh, exits the European Union in 2019. um, It's inevitable that, you know, people are going to be a bit uncertain of, you know, what the future will bring. uh, And maybe there may be a short-term recession uh, and certainly property prices might well come down for a year or two after that. But on the whole, I think we're going to see uh, faster growth over the next 10 years taking the UK as a whole than we've seen over the last few years. Of course, maybe some of the areas in parts of London which have seen very high growth so far may not continue to do that uh, because fewer and fewer people can you know, afford uh, uh, property there. But in, in other parts of the UK where a lot of infrastructure and other things are going in, such as Manchester and Liverpool, Leeds and Sheffield in the north of England or parts of Scotland, um, I don't see anything other than uh, fairly significant uh, growth going forward. Ten more years of it. How big are people's mortgages going to be and have there been any extensions in the average length of a mortgage? That's something that sneakily crept in here. We can now get 40-year mortgages in Australia. What is the banking sector doing to facilitate greater debt with uh, less pressure? Well, I mean, you are starting to see longer terms on mortgages, certainly particularly for first-time buyers they can put down less of a deposit than they've had to over the last few years, which was typically about 25%. Uh, As I mentioned, there's some government measures to assist with putting down that deposit through the help to buy scheme. But is that real? That's not going to do anything. That's just policy fraud, isn't it? If if everyone gets that assistance, then we're all going to be able to borrow more money and uh, land prices will go up. Indeed, but that's supporting the the 10 years of growth that that I mentioned. In addition to that, I mean, interest rates are historically low and, and not because they're artificially suppressed. I think we're in a, 
you know, some of the other cycles that I, I look at, I think we are in a century of fairly low inflation, which means interest rates can be fairly low. Uh, in addition to all of that, um, we haven't had much kind of wage growth, but I think as you know, the recovery really takes hold in, in Western economies, uh, you'll start to see wages go up, which you know means that people will feel richer and you know think they can take on greater loans, and it just it just goes on and on. But how's that going to actually occur as automation continues to increase? We've had this race to the bottom with globalization. For me, that's what put a lot of downward pressure on inflation. Yeah, that's uh, right. Outside of uh, pulling out uh, the land component from uh, inflation numbers, it's made uh, the numbers look better than they possibly should. That's a really big question. Look, I don't really know how the whole automation, robotics, AI, tech thing will play out. I was reading an interesting book called Zero Marginal Cost uh, fairly recently and um, you know it's it's basically showing that because of such advances the marginal cost of production in a lot of industries will be virtually zero which of course means that you know there won't be any space for any sort of wages. Um, I think as a human race we've been in similar scenarios before not necessarily with automation but you know most people used to drive uh, horse and carriages in days gone by and while those people lost their jobs new industries were born uh, because human demand is pretty much infinite uh, and since we're not catering to all of our desires at the moment um, there will be new industries that we can't even imagine that will employ people in the future but that aside I think that the original question that you are asking was you know how do people keep going on and on and I was I was quite interested because I picked up an old um, copy of the uh, independent newspaper in London um, a few uh, weeks ago. And it said something about how first-time buyers were panicking about how high property prices are. And uh, the interesting thing about that was it was written in 1998. Now, we look back at 1998 as some era of very affordable housing. I think we've always thought that housing is expensive but we have been willing uh, to go uh, uh, and, and borrow more and save for longer and buy as a couple of all the other things that, we've, that I mentioned before. And government will, to a certain extent, support that because, as I said, there seems to be this ideal of, of, of owning your own place and, and that seems to be the you know, major goal in, in, in the lives of a lot of people. I think we also need to remember some of the you know, some of the objective data, I was looking at a nationwide index, first time affordability is better now than it was at the peak of the cycle in 1990. So in certainly in London. Um, when interest of, rates were a lot higher. Interest rates were a lot higher and mortgages were a lot, show, uh, a lot shorter. So, you know, these things, things do develop, mm. things do emerge to kind of keep the thing, the carousel turning as it were. And I don't see that stopping anytime soon. Listeners probably know I'm pretty well uh, half glass empty, but I'm trying to stay positive <laughs> here and there. And uh, between yourself and Phil Anderson and this view that uh, uh, society is innovative and we do figure out new ways to, to bail ourselves out of, of these holes. And one of them, of course, is Airbnb and the uh, growing number of people who are renting out a spare room or even investors dedicating the whole home to uh, this rental income stream. Well, 
that's um, helping a number of people to uh, to pay off their mortgages so are there any other sort of trends you can see coming up uh, community land trusts in the UK has been a big one it's gone from uh, basically one or two at the at the 2008-9 era to now 170 with half of those built in the last couple of years so there seems to be a lot of movement amongst communities to get together is that getting much uh, airplay it's getting some yes um as as are what, what are called hmos houses of multiple occupancy and in fact that seems to be a uh, fashion amongst younger uh, renters is actually uh, and indeed property owners is to um to buy parts of uh, properties where there is a social angle to all of it. This is, so it's not the idea that you own your own plot of land anymore uh, and to some extent isolate yourself from uh, from other people. You actually live as part of a community with communal facilities, which actually might be a lot better than you could hope to have if you had your own place. So there are quite interesting um, dynamics going on. The millennials are now becoming quite a significant you know, demographic in a whole host of industries and the property market is one of them. And with that, the commodification of real estate is reaching a fever pitch, in my opinion, in terms of uh, Wall Street's stepping into the, the corporate rental market and what's happening with private equity now that uh, there are these rental-backed mortgage securities where money can be borrowed very, very cheaply and uh, uh, they can buy up big blocks of land, rent them out for a few years, get them rezoned and then sell them off. They still aren't at that last stage of the, the cycle, the property investment cycle there, but already there's uh, Invitation Homes, which is due to launch its IPO very soon, and uh, it's rumoured at $1.5 billion float but on the numbers I'm looking at, it should be closer to $9 billion. So if they get $3 billion plus, they're going to be the new Wall Street darlings and all sorts of money is going to flood into uh, the, these new corporatized uh, rental uh, models where you don't even need to step into the property anymore. There's everyone from a property stylist through to a property manager. Uh, you don't need to be on the ground. And so that is uh, uh, enhanced with this mobility of capital. London, being on the front line of so much of this, you must have some big private equity companies coming through looking to step into this sort of market. Absolutely. Uh, and it has been the case for uh, well, ever since the financial crisis. Uh, the first um, players into the property market were big American banks and funds who basically hoovered up a whole load of um, distressed real estate assets. Uh, if some of the numbers are to be believed, uh, in continental Europe, about 80% of those assets uh, were bought up by American firms. Um, some of those have exited the market now. They, their holding periods tend not to be that long. Um, what's quite interesting also is um, a development where a lot of pension funds who uh, uh, you know, required to return a decent yield on their investments are now looking at uh, real estate in a much bigger way uh, to provide that yield. Um, and so they're looking at you know, um, you know, big apartment blocks where they, a lot of the tenants are you know, uh, renting out uh, those places providing the long-term stable income that they need to meet their pension liabilities. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, every kind of level of society, it seems, will be participating in this rental trough uh, in some ways. Um, 
uh, and which will, I think, to a certain extent, increase the number of barriers to reform. Um, uh, but, you know, I suppose and, and uh, on the other side of that, you know, we were all, whether we like it or not, to a certain extent, be rentiers, whether it's through our pension fund or through our own investments, through the stock portfolio uh, or through just, you know, having a, a property and, and renting out a spare room or a spare office or something. Uh, it's it's the yeah, the rental tentacles are uh, very widespread. Rental tentacles. Well, there you go. <laughs> there, there's today's uh, topic. I just made that up. <laughs> well, there you go. Trademark that one quickly. <laughs> and there we have Akhil Patel from Ascendant Strategies and also Cycle Trends and Forecasts UK visiting Australia and uh, giving us perspective on what's happening in the UK property market. As always, uh, the global cities are on the forefront, copying it from this uh, speculative capital marauding the planet looking for easy profits and there are just so many easy profits out and about in uh, the world of real estate and uh, Cameron Murray at uh, Rump Statskin on Twitter was tweeting yesterday that Australian land values have increased by $2 trillion since 2007-8. That means uh, we could have all had some $83,000 each if we shared the rising value of the earth. And that's what our core policy focus is here on 3CR's Renegade Economist, is figuring out how we deal with this situation where people can buy and sell houses from their mobile phone sitting in a hammock on their favourite tax haven beach and uh, policymakers are really struggling with how to deal with it because the most effective and efficient way to do this is uh, has been highly demonised by the real estate lobby because it's the one tax they can't avoid and that is a tax on land values and a land value tax is a hot potato tax in a way it penalises developers for hoarding land Many of you will know the story of Manor Lakes out in uh, the Melbourne's west. Must be up to uh, stage 150 now. And uh, every couple of months they release about 10 to 12 properties. And over time uh, those prices are going ever higher and higher. And uh, they're probably some 35 to 40% of the way through their uh, production schedule. The way they're going to drip feed this to the market. And uh, at the same time, uh, these are the people who donate heavily to the Property Council and the other 13 think tanks set up to take out what myself and a couple of other uh, employees uh, a battle against. And uh, uh, continually, uh, this army of um, press agents is, uh, and lobbyists is uh, in the corridors of power and uh, telling all sorts of mistruths so that uh, uh, people uh, don't believe there is any alternative. And so we get uh, these elements of policy fraud, like uh, what the young are being led to believe in the UK with uh, this help to buy, which is very much similar to the first homeowners grant. Here in Australia in the last week, uh, the Liberal Party are scrambling to have some sort of policy that uh, they can put forward to counter the Labor Party's uh, successful critiquing of negative gearing. And uh, shock horror this morning when I read that they're pushing for uh, 
first home buyers to be able to access their superannuation to buy a home. And if everyone can access their superannuation, that creates more demand in the market. So it actually becomes a seller's subsidy and is, again, this policy fraud. It will not help people. Uh, was floated uh, last week that there may well be a, a reform in the capital gains tax. Well, very quickly lobbyists were uh, in Canberra to shut that one down, just as they were with discussions on improving the petroleum resource rent tax, more of the Earth's resources that uh, have been hocked off to uh, the lucky few, the, the privileged, and they are the ones who are making this easy money. The majority of that $2 trillion dollars is driving the wealth gap and we'd be better off if we just shared that money amongst the community and we could even give ourselves an income tax break. Uh, basically, we wouldn't need income taxes, which remember, only were introduced uh, around World War II. So uh, it's not something that uh, has been around forever and a day. The first um, taxation office set up in Australia uh, federally was the Federal Land Tax Office. So there's a lot, a lot of history behind this story. You hear snippets of it here on 3CR each week. Uh, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Check out our work at earthsharing.org.au and prosper.org.au. Could we have a future of prosperous earth sharing? That's what I'll leave you with here on 3CR. This is Subhumans, you're listening to 3CR, a radio for you, the people next door, the people next door to them, all the way around Maribel, the people who are so sick of watching their mainstream media, they need to turn on the radio, and they find this. Keep listening, you'll learn something sooner or later. Cheers.